1535. It's a calm and still August night in Tudor, London. The moonlight is obscured by a thick fog which hovers above the tranquil surface of the River Thames. A small wooden rowboat carrying a mysterious hooded woman makes gentle progress along the embankment, the oars gliding through the water and ripples lapping softly at its hull. Ahead looms the imposing London Bridge. Through the gloom, the woman gazes upwards. Along the southern side of the bridge, at regular intervals, she can just make out tall posts, each topped with a dark orb like a row of unlit lanterns. Her heart pounds and her blood throbs as she squints, straining to spot the man who has promised he will be here tonight, waiting at the centre of the bridge. He is. She sees him in his guard's uniform, leaning over the edge in anticipation of her vessel passing underneath. As it does so, she raises her arms and holds out her hands, and he drops a greying, stained sack from above. She catches it. Relief floods through her whole body. Her rowboat emerges from beneath the other side of the bridge, and she glances backwards through the murk to wave thanks to the guard. But he's no longer there and the bridge recedes into shadow once more. The woman turns back to the mottled sack in her arms. It's heavier than she'd expected. She reaches a hand in, and her fingers grasp onto a tangle of matted hair. She lifts the object out and stares into its gaunt, wasted face and lifeless eyes. She recognises them, because this is the severed head of her father, Sir Thomas More once Henry VIII's Lord High Chancellor, and now a disgraced and decapitated traitor. The woman blinks back her tears and sets her jaw, carefully replacing the decaying mass into the sack and stealing herself for the journey home. This is the story of that severed head. It's a strange and disturbing tale, and one which can inform our understanding of public shaming culture in our own time too. Welcome to The Timely Historian with me, Simone Bellani. Episode 5, Headhunting. A successful lawyer, author and statesman, Thomas More was a friend and confidant to Henry VIII who rose to become Lord High Chancellor in 1529. Thirteen years the King's senior, Moore was recognised as one of the most brilliant humanist thinkers of the age. He's known for coining the term utopia, which he used as the name of an imaginary island that was home to an ideal society as he saw it. Utopia bore little resemblance to Tudor England and was built on radical ideas for the time, representative democracy, religious tolerance, and an end to private property and money altogether. In his own home, too, Moore was known for implementing progressive ideas. He famously insisted that his daughters be as highly educated as his son, and his eldest and favourite daughter, Meg, who opened this episode, showed herself to be a particularly bright and high-achieving student. Above all, though, Moore is remembered for his unwavering faith in and loyalty to the Catholic Church. As a young man, he'd considered becoming a monk, and although he instead entered politics, 
his piety was well known. He famously wore a hair shirt and engaged in strict practices such as self-flagellation. He was staunchly committed to Catholic doctrine, and as he rose through the ranks of the Tudor court, he found himself increasingly consumed by opposing Martin Luther's Reformation. He believed Protestants to be evil heretics who threatened the very foundations of civilization, and he did not hesitate to have them pursued, tortured and burned at the stake. It was his uncompromising devotion to Catholicism which eventually led to his downfall. It meant that he disapproved of Henry VIII's campaign to divorce and discard his ageing first wife, Catherine of Aragon, in favour of the younger Anne Boleyn, whom he hoped would provide him with a male heir. The Pope refused to sanction the move, and so Henry VIII rashly broke from Rome and declared himself supreme head of the Church of England, granting himself a divorce instead but Moore refused to swear the oath affirming the king's authority over the popes, asserting that to do so would jeopardise my soul to perpetual damnation. The enraged Henry had Moore arrested and imprisoned. Over the next year, Moore stubbornly refused several opportunities to backtrack, preferring a clean conscience and martyrdom instead. In July 1935, he was tried for treason and sentenced to death. He met his end with dignity. His final words to the crowd as he stood on the scaffold were reportedly, I die the king's good servant and God's first. On the night before his execution, Moore had sent Meg a message reading, Farewell my dear child and pray for me and I shall for you that we may merrily meet in heaven. His family was given the headless corpse to bury. His head though was kept by the state boiled to preserve it and make it look especially terrifying, and then exhibited on a pike atop London Bridge as a warning to any other would-be opponents to the king. It was not until an entire month later that Meg was able to mount her rescue of her father's decomposing head. Once she returned home, Meg pickled it with various spices and oils, and there, in a jar, it remained with her for the rest of her life. What happened after that is still a little of a mystery. Moore's body was buried in the grounds of the Tower of London, but Meg wished for the head to lie cradled in her arms when she herself was laid to rest. She was interred in the vault of her husband's family in Canterbury, and some believe that Thomas Moore's head does indeed repose with her. Others believe that a small tomb, just big enough for a skull, was built for Moore inside Chelsea Old Church instead. Because Moore was made a saint by the Catholic Church after his earthly demise, some of his possessions have become holy relics as well. His hair shirt, for example, can be viewed in Dorset. And the poet John Donne, a descendant of Moore's, claimed that his relatives had smuggled some of Moore's teeth out of England and to Europe in their pockets too. There's even a locket which reportedly contains fragments of Moore's jawbone, and which attracts thousands of visitors and pilgrims wherever it's displayed today. How does this story relate to our own lives? Public executions have long brought out the most base instincts in ordinary people. After observing a public hanging in the 19th century, 
Charles Dickens bemoaned how the audience was, quote, so inexpressibly odious in their brutal mirth and callousness that a man had cause to feel ashamed of himself as fashioned in the image of the devil. But the significance of Thomas More's head lies not in the gruesome act of its severing. In fact, the execution by axe was less savage and protracted than the original sentence of hanging, drawing and quartering would have been. The momentary pain for the condemned man and the brief spectacle for the crowd were just that, fleeting. The true retribution was in the longer-lasting public defamation which came afterwards, when the head was left to rot out in the open for weeks on end, for the birds to peck away at and for all Londoners to ogle. And it's this form of public humiliation and derision as an informal type of punishment which we see around us today. It's the same impulse which is often behind online shaming and trolling on social media platforms. It's at the heart of the debate currently raging around cancel culture. So while the treatment of Thomas More may seem sickening and barbaric to us in hindsight, especially because it was due to nothing more than a clash of ideas, it's perhaps worth remembering that the same inclination to mercilessly degrade those we disagree with is still at work in public life today. Though if we're at least self-aware enough to recognise that, maybe we're making progress. Spotlight on Sources If you're interested in the schemers and conspirators of Henry VIII's court, there's no better recommendation than Hilary Mantel's highly acclaimed and multi-award winning Wolf Hall trilogy. The books chart the astronomical rise and fall of Thomas Cromwell, the chief minister of England and sometime nemesis of Thomas More. Even if you're familiar with the history itself, they offer a riveting account of the fortunes of these precursors to today's politicians. I have to admit that it took me three attempts to get into Wolf Hall. I found Mantell's style a little disorienting to begin with, but I've grown to appreciate and adore it over time. The unabridged audiobooks are excellent too. Details of other sources I used to explore Sir Thomas More's life are also in the show notes, and thanks to Will Weingarten for help with researching this episode as well. Thank you for listening. Thoughts and suggestions are always welcome on Instagram. I'm at the Timely Historian. I know there are some fellow teachers out there listening to these episodes too. If you've enjoyed them and you think your students might, please share the show with your classes. I'll see you next time.